Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices, Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I'm honored to be joined by David Murrah. Thank you for talking with all of us today. Well, thank you for having me, Alex. We're discussing your uh, latest publication, The Stories Whiteness Tells Itself, Racial Myths and Our American Narratives. I really enjoyed reading it, um, in part because I was an English major, and the way that you deal with texts um, from James Baldwin to Jonathan Franzen, the way that you look at the issues of racism, and the way that you call us to a kind of psychological and spiritual awakening, all of that spoke to me. And I would like to hear from you, what is your hope that people get out of this book? Well, I hope to change people's minds and to inform them. I always start off by talking to people about this issue. Is I, I'm not. I didn't write the book to shame and guilt people, and I don't speak to shame and guilt people. I don't believe that that changes people. What I believe changes people is love and knowledge, and so what I'm offering. I hope with love, I think with love, is, is knowledge to people and ways of looking at the issues of race that they may not have thought of before. Now, you come at this from a variety of interesting angles that give you something fresh to say on this uh, age-old topic. One of them is geography. Uh, you are from the Twin Cities in Minnesota. And I'll just read from the page here because I thought your expression of the way that um, these uh, uh, killings that have been in the news um, have uh, connected with your own personal life, uh, I, I found very interesting. So if you don't mind, I'll just say, again, this killing felt very close to me and to my family. George Floyd was murdered three miles from my home in the neighborhood where my daughter lives and works with young people. The third precinct where many of the protests focused is six blocks from her home. My son works in a high school half a mile from Cup Foods, and he knows Darnella Franzier the brave 17-year-old who took the central video of the murder. Both my sons went to school with the fire department EMT who tried to intervene to save George Floyd. The hospital where my wife works is a mile down from the street from Cup Foods. And then I like this part here. I danced with her at the Latin club where George Floyd worked as a bouncer, perhaps even on a night he was there. Uh, What did it feel like to... Um, see this happen knowing that it was so close to the life uh, of of people that you care about and, and how did it impact you personally? Well, it was terribly upsetting and all of my family was upset by this um, and it felt, as I say in the piece, very close for all of us. I think the 
what made it even more painful is in the book starts with an essay on Flander Castile, who was a black man who was also killed in the Twin Cities. And he was killed at a road maybe two, three miles from my house. And for people who may not know, um, he he was in the car with his girlfriend and her four-year-old daughter. And uh, he had a permit to carry a gun. And the officer, Geronimo Yanez, was looking for two black males with dreadlocks who had robbed the convenience store. And when he stopped them, um, you know, there was conflicting reports, you know, about what had happened. You know, his girlfriend said he was just trying to pull out his license and, and the the policeman said he was trying to pull out a gun. And if you think about it, it just makes no sense. There's a four-year-old girl in the back seat, right? And yeah. and woman sitting it's a woman sitting next to him, not another black male, right? <laughs> And so that that and this was very upsetting to people in the Twin Cities. And the fact that then George Floyd murder happened uh, four years later, uh, just, you know, reopened, you know, as, as these uh, killings do um, wounds in the uh, in the Twin Cities and, and across the country. But I think another thing about this is because my children work with young people and. I have worked with my friends, um, Alex Pate's program, The Innocent Classroom. And I write about Alex's novelization of Amistad in the book. But I also write a little bit about his program, which is designed to teach K through 12 teachers to improve their relationships with students of color. And it's called The Innocent Classroom. And people can look it up, theinnocentclassroom.com. And one of the premises of the book is that children of color in America grow up bombarded by stereotypes of who they are, negative stereotypes. And so much, uh, and in the days following the murder of George Floyd, a, a teacher on the north side of Minneapolis, which is mainly black, wrote about uh, an assignment she gave to her all black class, seventh graders. Um, to write on My America. And she said, uh, nearly 100% of my class wrote about their fears of police and police brutality. In seventh grade words, they expressed unjust behaviors by authorities to them. They are 12 and 13 years old. They do not need to have this weight on their shoulders now. Their goals should be learning and being a kid. I sat down at my desk and sobbed, thinking about what my students go through on a daily basis whether walking, playing, and talking while black. And uh, I edited an anthology in 2021 uh, of uh, BIPOC writers of color in Minnesota. And uh, my friend, the poet Doug Carney, writes about how at six years old, he had to tell his children, his twins, about the killing of Philando Castile. And then at 10 years old, he had to tell them about the killing of George Floyd. And he says that, that white supremacy put me in a position to make this a reasonable conversation to have with my then six-year-olds is a violence I will never forgive. I will go to work carrying it. I will share social space carrying it. I will form friendships carrying it. Yet I will not forgive it. You know, and we're having all these controversies about 
teaching about race in the schools, right? In Tennessee, Moms for Liberty uh, has call, called for the banning of the story of Ruby Bridges. Incredible. Now, Ruby Bridges was a six-year-old black girl who desegregated the New Orleans school in 1960. And they say, Moms for Liberty says, well, this will damage and make, make our, our white children feel guilty and, you know, bad. And, and I look at that and I say, you know, there's a racist undertone to this because they don't think my white children could be inspired by the story of Ruby Bridges. They can be inspired that this six-year-old could stand up to a crowd of angry white segregationists and that she fought for the goals of freedom, equality, and democracy that we all supposedly believe in as Americans. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, when they're talking about the fragility of white children, they aren't thinking about the fact that every black parent in America at some point must figure out how to have the talk. And they have to tell their children stories of police brutality and police killings in order to warn them about encounters with police. Now, if these Moms for Liberty really cared about children, they would care about the fact that these black children have to hear these stories of police brutality and killings. But they clearly don't care about these children. Yeah. Um, one of the things that resonated with me about your book is the way that you sort of come into the conversation um, from the side, so to speak. And what I mean by that is I had the opportunity to um, uh, spend some time with Laman Sana, who teaches sort of on world religions at Yale before he passed away. And he was talking to me as a Seventh-day Adventist. And he said, you know, we're a small organization. And he said he was sort of encouraging that even though, you know, there's only a million of you in the U.S. and 20 million around the world, you you know, there's still something to contribute to the world uh, beyond just sort of clinging on to the old truths that in many ways don't really seem that relevant, especially in a world where we're dealing with these ecological and, and, and racial disasters. And uh, he said, well, you're on the margins. Uh, and, and I, what he meant by that is you sort of don't fit in, you know, we're not really evangelical. We're not, we're not really mainline. We kind of get birthed out of this um, odd period in, in the 19th century. And, uh, you know, our closest cousins are the Mormons who we disagree with on everything <laughs> and never want to be associated with, uh, really. Um, and so what I liked about what you, uh, how you approach these issues is you really come at it from your own experience. And if I can read again here briefly, you talk about uh, being a third generation Japanese American kid growing up in a Jewish suburb of, uh, suburb of Chicago, wanting to be considered white. And you talk really beautifully about the tensions of assimilation and fitting in, but that, um, that, uh, that always a reminder of sort of being on the margins and it can create, I think, uh, uh, a, a, a hunger in our consciousness to really understand. And it also, I think, makes good observers. You kind of, we kind of pay attention to what's mainstream, what everyone likes, and then we kind of learn, we adapt, uh, you know, 
but it can also make really great cultural critics because you're like, hey, you think you're all, you know, doing fine. And in fact, you see all the ways that what we think of as, you know, what America was great about is actually uh, manufactured and oftentimes a lie predicated on some very, very dangerous untruths. And you do that, you really unpack these untruths of whiteness, the lies that it tells itself. Can you talk a little bit about that biography and how you managed to, um, you know, what what saved you through that process? Well, my parents, uh, my grandfather came from Japan in 1898. So my family has been here for oh, yeah. uh, a century and quarter, right? People still ask me where I'm from, you know, and, and they don't mean Chicago, right? Sure. Right. Um, but my parents at the ages of 11, 15, along with their families, were imprisoned by the United States government during World War II in concentration camps behind barbed wire fences with rifle towers, uh, with guards with rifles pointing inwards at the uh, internees. Now, this did not happen to the German-Americans. This did not happen to the Italian-Americans, who were white. It only happened to the Japanese-Americans. And my parents, I think consciously and unconsciously, received the message, your crime is your race and ethnicity. Because obviously, 1115, they hadn't committed any crime, and no Japanese-American was ever convicted of any espionage. And 40 years later, it was discovered that the FBI had determined that the Japanese community was not a military threat, but lied to the public about that. So I was raised, and I went. Uh, I grew up in a Jewish suburb. Uh, I actually went to school at Merrick Garland, attorney uh, <laughs> wow. school Merrick Garland. <laughs> that next to him in calculus and others English. And, and, uh, <laughs> but uh, when a white friend would say to me, I, I, I think you'd be David just like a white person, I would go, that's what I want to be. I want to be a white person. So when I speak in the book about whiteness, first of all, I'm speaking of whiteness is not a quality that's inherent to white people. It is an ideology, a set of beliefs, ideas, and practices, which established and maintained white supremacy. Now, people can abandon whiteness. You know, they can choose to abandon whiteness. And when white people begin to abandon the rules of whiteness, they often discover that people get angry with them. And then they know, they, they begin to understand there are rules about how I'm supposed to comport myself as a white person. That's a great point. Uh, you know, and so, and, and it was the same way with, you know, my father got got a you know he got on a segregated bus because they would get a day pass to get on the camps and you know the white people said sit in the front and the black people said sit in the back and it, it was a crazy thing because even though you know he was imprisoned you know the white people didn't want him to sit with the black people right mm -hmm. uh, so he couldn't enter that bus without entering the racial divide of the segregated South. And what he did is he tended to um, identify with the white people. But in my late 20s, I began to read black authors and I realized, oh, I'm not white. What am I? 
you know, what does it mean to be a third generation Japanese American? And my parents had never talked about the, their experience in the internment camps. Most of their generation didn't talk to their children about it. It was this area of silence. Um, and as I began to examine that, I realized that it had a great effect on the way that my parents thought about themselves. It certainly had an economic effect. Um, so I, I, I understand, you know, that my history is, is intertwined with the history of race in America. Now, you know, one of the things we have these days is, you know, uh, uh, you know, I, if I mentioned Fox News, I mean, they're railing against diversity. Yeah. But the beginning, I, 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 I've written and co-produced a public television documentary about the Japanese Americans who served as linguists in the Pacific War. Now, at the beginning of the war, they America had white German speakers, white Italian speakers. They didn't have any white Japanese speakers. And they knew they needed them in the war in the Pacific. So they had to go into the camps to recruit Japanese. <laughs> so these men, many of these men were prisoners of the United States government. They, uh, and the army is saying, will you come and serve as linguists? And these men went out. There were some women, too. And they went out in the Pacific as battlefield guides, as translators, as interrogators. And MacArthur's chief of intelligence said that they shortened the war by two years and saved a million American lives. And which means there are anti-Asian, anti-immigrant white people who are alive today <laughs> because of the work of these men. Yeah. And so that's the value of diversity. And, you know, I really believe that we have to understand, you know, the story of white America is my story. The story of black America is my story. But the story of black America is also the story of white America. Yeah. And we have to tell those stories together. And we have to tell the truth about those stories. Yeah. You mentioned reading black authors and you do a lot with James Baldwin. You say here, when it comes to race in America, Baldwin knew that profession is not achievement. Intent is not result. He understood that there is a spiritual price the oppressor must pay. And he understood how oppression affects the spirit and soul of the oppressed. His essays explore why actual equality, which entails the recognition of black Americans as equals, is so difficult for white Americans to even begin to address. Why did, the, why did these authors particularly help you understand yourself um, well, Baldwin particularly <clears throat> goes through American history in his book, The Devil Finds Work, and talks about how white America has erected these unblemished white heroes, right? Yeah. And tells this tale of these unblemished white heroes to itself. So we can talk about Jefferson, and Jefferson was, had a great mind, in many ways was a great man. He wrote the Declaration of Independence. He was instrumental in the writing of the Constitution. He was our third president. But he also owned 600 slaves. He also impregnated a 16-year-old slave. And then she was a quarter black. So their children were one-eighth black. And people said, Tom, they look like you. <laughs> But he kept his own children as slaves. Yeah. 
Now, we have to wrestle with that. And when people say, well, that was way back in the past, right? Well, I'm going to go to what seems like a tangent. We have vast racial disparities in the healthcare system mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the mortality of preg- pregnant mothers who give birth. Uh, black people are 4.3 times more likely to have their limbs amputated. And in emergency rooms, they wait longer for pain medication than white people for the same conditions and illnesses. They receive less pain medication than white people for the same illnesses and conditions. Now, in 2016, there was a survey of 222 white medical students, and half of them professed the belief that black people feel less physical pain than white people. Yeah. Often because they supposedly have thicker skin. Now, Jefferson, during his time, was a leading proponent and ideologist of slavery and white supremacy. And he disseminated these ideas that black people were intellectually inferior, that, that black people were unable to appreciate culture, less moral, and that they felt less physical pain. So when people say that, let's let go of the past, his ideas are in half of these 222 white medical students. The so past the is present. This still infecting the, the present. Now, I don't believe that, you know, these medical students are members of the KKK or even, you know, you know, explicitly racist, but their behavior is racist because they've been affected by racist ideas and they don't even realize, I think, some of them, that these are racist ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Uncovering the, that sort of um, unconscious bias is such an important part of what um, reading does. You have really dedicated your life to letters uh, as a poet and um, writer. Can you talk about why um, why you did that and what you what the value of reading? is um, just beyond gaining knowledge why why you've really championed um, something that in many ways seems uh, you know antiquated in the age of TikTok and uh, <laughs> cable news well I you know I have taught writing for my whole life and what I see is that first of all that literature makes the world more interesting it, 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 you know, stories are the way we understand ourselves and our world. But it is also, as I see in my students, it is the way they come to understand themselves, it's the way they come to express who they are. And it's the way they come to value who they are, their own story. And so many times we were told our stories don't matter, right? Now, one of the things I feel like this relates to race is, is you know, recently, Ron DeSantos in Florida has banned the AP African American His African American Studies course. Yeah. Now I tell people to think about this. In slavery, the white slave owners forbid the Africans to teach each other to read. They forbid the Africans from teaching each other their culture and language. DeSantos wants to forbid African American writers and scholars from teaching their own culture and history. It's a Southern tradition which needs to be stopped. 
The other thing is, and I make this point in my book, is that in the rules of whiteness, white knowledge is always valid, objective, true, and official. White knowledge is always valid, objective, true, and official. Black knowledge is always invalid, subjective, true or suspicious, and unofficial, unless white people declare it is. Now, DeSantos is not an Afri- study, a scholar of African-American <laughs> studies. He doesn't have a PhD in African-American studies. And yet, he feels he can judge the courses on edu- as lacking educational value over all these brilliant black writers and scholars. And why does he do it? I think because he relies on the rules of white supremacy. I'm a white person. I can invalidate black knowledge. It's my right to invalidate black knowledge. Yeah. Now, when, when, when he does this, if we look at our racial history, black people have always been on the right side of the history. They're on the right side of slavery. They're on the right side of Jim Crow. They're on the right side of civil rights. And the majority of white people were on the wrong side. A majority of white people disapproved of Martin Luther King when he was alive. You know, so, but white people have never turned to black people and said, at every point in our racial history, you've been on the right side of history and we've been on the wrong side of history. So now we should listen to you in the present. Mm-hmm. And that's something that DeSantos and his ilk refused to do. Right? They refuse to recognize really what is the moral authority of the black movement for racial equality, you know, which is a, also a deeply spiritual movement, right? King was a deeply spiritual, you know, and yes. he practiced Christianity. He loved his neighbor as even when the neighbor was beating him. Yeah. Right? He turned the other cheek. And, you know, I have to say today in Christianity, you know, when you have these calls for cruelty, you know, like, let's, let's, let's have, you know, firing squads, you know, (laughs) I I don't understand how people don't see that that is antithetical to Christian values. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the debate over torture. Yeah. Um, as a way of extracting information. When, when Jesus from... is talking constantly about mercy, about loving your neighbor, right? That's, you know, I grew up Episcopalian. That, that to me is the core of Christianity. Yeah. It's like, it's not cruelty. It's not like, let's slap the other guy before they slap me. <laughs> right? It's turn the other cheek. Yeah, and that's difficult. But you see this example: black people in America have believed in America. They believe in the ideals of freedom, uh, equality, and democracy in a way far more than white people. My uncles who fought in World War II, even while their families were imprisoned behind barbed wire, they believed in the ideals of freedom, equality, and democracy. So, you know, I I think we have. To keep these values, both the values of freedom, equality, and democracy, and you know, if this is a Christian nation, the values that Christ preached. <laughs> well, I'm glad you mentioned um, these sort of spiritual values in your chapter, abandoning whiteness. Toward the end of the book, you um, mention spirituality as an as an essential part of of telling the truth 
and abandoning these white lies. Um, again, I'll just quote, what's the solution to this situation you write? As in the old Zen cone, the white person has to find a way to empty their mind. That is to step aside from the racial assumptions and premises they've grown up with. They have to enter a new and different psychological and spiritual space, or rather they have to find or create that space in themselves. This space is generally one of unknowing for a lack of certainty, of a willingness on the part to admit that they might not know what they do not know. And I think that gets to the point you were just making there about the way that we've created this bifurcation, white knowledge is sort of objective, and then uh, any other threat to that is subjective and so dismissed. And here you're really encouraging us to sort of um, be agnostic in a way, to not enter into a conversation assuming that we know. And, and, and there's a, always a threat there to whiteness, which is the idea that it's that, oh, now what are you telling me? I have to be, I have to feel shame. And that gets walls up and it becomes very emotional, which is always interesting because um, often whiteness is predicated on thinking that they have us, the the racist person has a superior sense of history and is, um, you know, objective and not emotional. But here you're saying that, you know, or elsewhere you talk about that, that shame is not really your goal and shouldn't actually, and is, is, is a sort of illusory emotion that gets in the way of, of actually um, self-knowledge. Can you unpack that a little bit? Well, Baldwin has this great quotation where he says, the question of identity is a question inducing the most profound panic. A terror is primary as the nightmare of the mortal fall. So what he says is to change one's identity is terrifying, is confronting the fact that you're going to die. But he says, people, you know, identity, he says, should be a little like the robes of the desert through which one's nakedness could always be felt and sometimes discerned. And he says, you know, that what he means by this is we may think our identities, like the garments we wear, are who we are. Sure. Underneath, we're just naked people. We're fallible, mortal people. And he says, this belief in one's nakedness is what will give one the power to change one's robes. So it has to be humility. Like, my white identity is the way I've been taught by the society is not me, white people have to realize. It's a set of beliefs and ideas and practices that you've been taught. And you can doff them in the way that one would doff a robe and put on a new robe. But it's terrifying because in between that, you have to be naked. In between the changing of the robes, you have to be naked. You have to be vulnerable. You have to admit, like, I'm not this splendid thing that my robes tell me I am. You know, I, I am a naked, fallible human being. You know, I liken at the end of the book, the changes that white people, I think, need to go through like are like the stages in Helen Kubler-Ross's 
nine of the five stages of grief. So first there's denial. There is no racism. It's in the past. You know, it's long ago. Like there, there is no racism. Then it's anger. Why are you bringing this up? You know, there was no problems in our church, in our school, in our business until you started bringing them up. There was no problems in our town until you started bringing up these issues. Then it becomes bargaining. Okay, well, there's some racism. There's a few bad apples, right? And as Chris Rock said, would you want to fly on an airline with a few bad apples? <laughs> would you want to be operated on a by a surgery department with a few bad apples? <laughs> but beyond that, racism is clearly systemic. And but you go, well, it's it's, it's there, but it's not er- everywhere, right? It's not it's not systemic. So there there's the bargaining. Then there's grief, which can come in the form of, I feel so shameful, I feel so guilty, I feel so terrible, or how do you deal with this? It must be so terrible for you, you know. And then finally, as Helen Kubrash says, at the end, there's acceptance. It is, there is racism. It is extensive. It's been in our society since 1619. And we just simply need to confront it. And I don't think white people have to come out and beat their chest or feel shameful. Um, that it, 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 because it's not about the individual. Yeah. Like when black people and white people smoke marijuana at exactly the same rate, but black people are 3.4, other statistics, four times more likely to be arrested for smoking marijuana, right? That's systemic. Yeah. And then black people are more likely to go to trial than white people. They're more likely to be convicted than white people, more likely to serve time than white people, more likely to serve longer time than white people. Well, all of those discrepancies can't be the result of just a few bad apples. It has to be systemic. And people have to just realize that. And in realizing that system, It doesn't mean like you as a white person are a horrible person, right? No. But you can begin to say, oh, my African-American brothers and sisters have been suffering. I, as a moral person, I, as a Christian, need to respond and fight against that suffering. They've been persecuted. I need to respond to that persecution. Well, that's a. I appreciate the structure and the way that you uh, use that analogy. I think it's a helpful one. It's been really great talking with you, David. I appreciate the the grace that you bring to this uh, conversation and the insights that you provide. You describe this as a psychological and spiritual journey, uh, and uh, it's a. You're a. a, a a kind companion as you help people understand the ways that they can make our world a better place. So thank you so much for this conversation. Well, thank you, Alex, so much for having me. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move when the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely I'll never forget it.